Chapter 7 of Travel Stories Retold from St. Nicholas by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Motoring Through the Golden Age, Part 1 by Albert Bigelow Payne. It was some time in June when we found ourselves drifting about Normandy in our motor car, and one peaceful evening we came to Bayeux and stopped there for the night. Bayeux, which is about sixty miles from Cherbourg, was intimately associated with the life of William the Conqueror, and is today the home of the famous Bayeux Tapestry, a piece of linen two hundred and thirty feet long and eighteen inches wide, on which is embroidered in colored wool the story of William's conquest of England. William's queen, Matilda, is supposed to have designed this marvelous pictorial document and even executed it, though probably with the assistance of her ladies. Completed in the 11th century, it would seem to have been stored in the Bayer Cathedral, where it lay, scarcely remembered, for a period of more than 600 years. Then attention was called to its artistic and historic value, and it became still more widely known when Napoleon brought it to Paris and exhibited it at the Louvre. Now it is back in Bayeux and has a special room in the museum there, and a special glass case so arranged so that you can walk around it and see each of its 58 tableaux. Matilda was ahead of her time in art. She was a futurist, anybody could see that who had been to one of the recent exhibitions but she was exactly abreast in the matter of history it is likely that she embroidered the events as they were reported to her and her records are beyond price to-day i suppose she sat in a beautiful room with her maids about her all engaged at the great work and i hope she looked as handsome as she does in the fine painting that hangs above the case containing her masterpiece it was the closing hour when we got to the Bayer Museum, but the guardian generously gave us plenty of time to walk around and look at all the marvelous procession of horses and men whose outlines have remained firm and whose colors have stayed fresh for more than 800 years. There is something fine and stirring about Matilda's tapestry. No matter if Harold does seem to be having an attack of pleurisy when he is only putting on his armor, or if the horses appear to have detachable legs. I could see that the Joy, who is a judge of horses, did not think much of Queen Matilda's drawing, and their riders were not much better. Still, it was wonderful how they did seem to go in some of the battles, and they made that old story seem very real to us. Tradition has it that the untimely death of Matilda left the tapestry unfinished, for which reason William's coronation does not appear. Next day at Caen, we visited Matilda's tomb in a church which she herself founded. Her remains have never been disturbed. We also visited the tomb of the Conqueror on the other side of the city at the church of Saint-Étienne, but the Conqueror's bones are not there now. They were scattered by the Huguenots in 1562. We enjoy Caen. We wandered about among its ancient churches and still more ancient streets. At one church a wedding was going on, and Narcissa and I lingered a little to assist. One does not get invited to a Normandy wedding every day, especially in the old town where William I organized his followers to invade England. No doubt this bride and groom were descendants of some of William's wild Normans, but they looked very mild and handsome and modern to us. Caen became an important city under William the Conqueror. 
Edward III of England captured and pillaged it about the middle of the 14th century, at which time it was larger than any city in England except London. Today, Caen has less than 50,000 inhabitants and is mainly interesting for its art treasures and its memories. Our travel program included Rouen, Amiens, and Beauvais, cathedral cities lying more to the northward. It was at Rouen that we started to trace backward the sacred footsteps of Joan of Arc, saint and savior of France, for it is at Rouen that the pathway ends. When we had visited the great cathedral, whose fairy-like façade is one of the most beautiful in the world, we drove to a corner of the old marketplace and stopped before a bronze tablet which tells that on this spot on a certain day in May 1431, it was the 29th, a young girl who had saved her country from an invading and conquering enemy was burned at the stake. That was 500 years ago, but time has not dulled the tragedy of the event, its memory of suffering, its humiliation. All those centuries since, the nation that Joan saved has been trying to atone for her death. Streets have been named for her, and statues have been set up for her in public squares all over France. There is little in Rouen today that Joan saw. The cathedral was there in her time, but she was never permitted to enter it. There is a wall which was a part of the chapel where she had her final hearing before her judges. There are some houses which she must have passed, and there is a tower which belonged to the castle in which she was imprisoned, though it is not certain that it is Joan's Tower. There is a small museum in it, and among its treasures we saw the manuscript article St. Joan of Arc by Mark Twain, who in the personal recollections has left to the world the loveliest picture of that lovely life. It was our purpose to leave Rouen by the Amiens road, but when we got to it and looked up a hill that about halfway to the zenith arrived at the sky, we decided to take a road that led off toward Beauvais. We could have climbed that hill well enough, and I wish later we had done so. As it was, we ran along pleasantly during the afternoon and attended evening services at an old church at Grand Vivier, a place that we had never heard of before, but where we found an inn as good as any in Normandy. It is curious with what exactness fate times its conclusions. If we had left Grandvilliers a few seconds earlier or later, it would have made all the difference, or if I had not pulled up a moment to look at a lovely bit of brookside planted with poplars, or if I had driven the least bit slower or the least bit faster during the first five miles, or, oh, never mind, what happened was this, we had just mounted a long steep hill at high speed, and I had been bragging of the car always a dangerous thing to do, when I saw ahead of us a big two-wheeled cart going in the same direction as ourselves, and beyond it a large car approaching. I could have speeded up and cut in ahead of the cart, but I was feeling well, and I thought I should do the courteous thing, the safe thing, so I fell in behind it. Not far enough behind, however, for as the big car came opposite, the sleepy driver of the cart awoke, pulled up his horse short, and we were not far enough behind for me to get the brakes down hard and suddenly enough to stop before we touched him. It was not a smash, it was just a push, but it pushed a big hole in our radiator, smashed up one of our lamps, and crinkled up our left mudguard. The radiator was the worst. The water poured out. 
Our car looked as if it had burst into tears. We were really stupefied at the extent of our disaster. The big car at once pulled up to investigate and console us. The occupants were Americans, too, from Washington, kindly people who wanted to shoulder some of the blame. Their chauffeur, a Frenchman, bargained with the cart driver who had wrecked us to tow us to the next town, where there were garages. Certainly, pride goes before a fall. Five minutes earlier, we were sailing along in glory, exulting over the prowess of our vehicle. Now, all in the wink of an eye, our precious conveyance, stricken and helpless, was being towed to the hospital, its owners trudging mournfully behind. The village was Poix, and if one had to be wrecked anywhere, I cannot think of a lovelier spot for disaster than Poix de la Somme. It is just across in Picardy, and the river Somme is a little brook that ripples and winds through poplar-shaded pastures, sweet meadows, and deep groves. In every direction are the loveliest walks, with landscape pictures at every turn. The village itself is drowsy, kindly, simple-hearted. The landlady at our inn was a large motherly soul that during the week of our stay the joy learned to love and I to be grateful to. For the others did not linger. Paris was not far away and had a good deal to recommend it. The new radiator ordered from London might be delayed. So early next morning they were off for Paris by way of Amiens and Beauvais, and the Joy and I settled down to such employments and amusements as we could find while waiting for repairs. We got acquainted with the garage man's family, for one thing. They lived in the same little court with the shop, and we exchanged Swiss French for their Picardies, and we were bosom friends in no time. We spruced up the car, too, and every day took long walks, and every afternoon took some luncheon and our spirit stove, and followed down the Somme to a little bridge, and there made our tea. Then sometimes we read, and once, when I was reading aloud from Joan of Arc, and had finished the great battle of Patay, we suddenly remembered that it had happened on the very day on which we were reading, the 18th of June. How little we guessed that in such a short time our peaceful little river would give its name to a battle a thousand times greater than any that Joan ever fought. One day I hired a bicycle for the joy and entertained the village by pushing her around the public square until she learned to ride alone. Then I hired one for myself, and we went out on the road together. About the end of the third day we began to look for our radiator— and visited the express office with considerable regularity. Presently the village knew us, why we were there, and what we were expecting. They became as anxious about it as ourselves. One morning, as we started toward the express office, a man in a wagon passed and called out something. We did not catch it, but presently another met us, and, with a glad look, told us that our goods had arrived, and were now in the delivery wagon on the way to the garage. We did not recognize either of those good souls, but they were interested in our welfare. Our box was at the garage when we arrived there. It was soon opened and the new radiator in place. The other repairs had been made, and once more we were complete. We decided to start next morning to join the others in Paris. Morning comes early on the longest days of the year, and we had eaten our breakfast, had our belongings put into the car, and were ready to be off by seven o'clock. What a delicious morning it was! Calm, glistening, the dew on everything. 
as long as i live i shall remember that golden morning when the joy aged eleven and i went gypsying together following the winding roads and byways that led us through pleasant woods under sparkling banks and along the poplar planted streams of picardy we did not keep to highways at all we were in no hurry and we took any lane that seemed to lead in the right direction so that much of the time we appeared to be crossing fields fields of flowers many of them scarlet poppies often mingled with blue cornflowers and yellow mustard fancy the vividness of that colour travelling in that wandering fashion it was noon before we got down to beauvais where we stopped for luncheon supplies and to see what is perhaps the most remarkable cathedral in the world it is one of the most beautiful and though it consists only of choir and transepts it is one of the largest its inner height from floor to vaulting is a hundred and fifty-eight feet the average ten-story skyscraper could be set inside of it there was once a steeple that towered to the giddy height of five hundred feet but in fifteen seventy three when it had been standing three hundred years it fell down from having insufficient support the inner work is of white stone marble and the whole place seems filled with light beauvais has many interesting things but the day had become very warm and we did not linger we found some of the most satisfactory pastries i have ever seen in france fresh and dripping with richness also a few other delicacies and by and by under a cool apple tree on the road to campien the joy and i spread out our feast and ate it and listened to some little french birds singing vita 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 meaning that we must be quick 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 so they could have the crumbs it was at Compiègne that joan of arc was captured by her enemies just a year before that last fearful day at rouen she had relieved orleans she had fought pate she had crowned the king at reims she would have had her army safely in paris if she had not been withheld by a weak king influenced by his shuffling time-serving counsellors she had delivered compiegne the year before but now again it was in trouble besieged by the duke of burgundy i will go to my good friends of compiegne she said when the news came and taking such force as she could muster in number about six hundred cavalry she went to their relief from a green hill commanding the valley of the oise the joy and i looked down upon the bright river and pretty city which joan had seen on that long ago afternoon of her last battle for france somewhere on that plain the battle had taken place and joan's little force for the first time had failed there had been a panic joan still fighting and trying to rally her men had been surrounded dragged from her horse and made a prisoner she had led her last charge we crossed a bridge and entered the city and stopped in the big public square facing larue's beautiful statue of joan which the later friends of compiegne have raised to her memory it is joan in semi-armor holding aloft her banner and on the base in old french is inscribed je vrai voir mes bons amis de compiegne i will go to see my good friends of compiegne many things in compiegne are beautiful but not many of them are very old joan's statue looks toward the handsome and richly ornamented hotel de ville but joan could not have seen this building for it dates a hundred years after her death 
there are the handsome churches in one or both of which she doubtless worshipped when she first had delivered the city and possibly a few houses of that ancient time still survive next morning we visited the palace it has been much occupied by royalty for compiègne was always a favorite residence of the rulers of france napoleon came there with the empress marie louise and louis de philippe and napoleon the third both found retirement here i think it could not have been a very inviting or restful home there are long halls and picture galleries all with shiny floors and stiffly placed properties and the royal suites are just a series of square fancily decorated and upholstered boxes strung together with doors between but then palaces were not meant to be cosy pretty soon we went back to the car and drove into a big forest for ten miles or more to an old feudal castle such a magnificent old castle all towers and turrets and battlements the chateau of pierrefonds one of the finest in france it stands upon a rocky height overlooking a lake and it does not seem so old though it had been there forty years when joan of arc came and it looks as if it might remain there about as long as the hill it stands on it was built by louis of orleans brother of charles the sixth and the storm of battle has often raged about its base here and there it still shows the mark of bombardment and two cannonballs stick fast in the wall of one of its solid towers pierrefonds was in bad repair and had become well-nigh a ruin in fact when napoleon the third at his own expense engaged vieux le duc to restore it in order that france might have a perfect type of the feudal castle in its original form it stands to-day as complete in its structure and decoration as it was when louis of norleans moved in more than five hundred years ago and it conveys exactly the solid home surroundings of the medieval lord it is just a show-place now and its vast court and its chapel and halls of state are all splendid enough though nothing inside can be quite as magnificent as its mighty assemblage of towers and turrets rising above the trees and reflecting in the blue waters of a placid lake it began raining before we got to paris so we did not stop at crepy en valois or saint lys or chantilly or saint denis in fact neither the joy nor i hungered even for paris which we had once visited the others had already seen their fill so with only a day's delay we all took the road to versailles it was at rambouillet that we lodged an ancient place with a chateau and a vast park also an excellent inn the croix blanche one of those that you enter by driving through to an inner court before dinner we took a walk into the park along the lakeside and past the chateau where francis i died in fifteen forty seven we were off next morning following the rich and lovely valley of the eure to chartres we had already seen the towers from a long distance when we turned at last into the cathedral square and remembered the saying that the choir of beauvais and the nave of amiens the portal of reims and the towers of chartres would together make the finest church in the world to confess the truth i did not think the towers of chartres as handsome as those of rouen but then i am not a purist in cathedral architecture certainly the cathedral itself is glorious i shall not attempt to describe it 
any number of men have written books trying to do that and most of them have failed i only know that the wonder of its architecture the marvel of its relief carving lace in stone and the sublime glory of its windows somehow possessed us and we did not know when to go i met a woman once who said she had spent a month at chartres and put in most of it sitting in the cathedral looking at those windows when she told me of it i had been inclined to be scornful i was not so any more those windows made by some unknown artist dead five hundred years invite a lifetime of contemplation we left chartres by one of the old city gates and through a heavenly june afternoon followed the straight level way to chateau an ancient town perched upon the high cliff above the valley of the loire which is a different river from the loire much smaller and more picturesque the chateau itself hangs on the very verge of the cliffs with startling effect and looks out over a picture valley as beautiful as any in france this was the home of danois who left it to fight under joan of arc he was a great soldier one of her most loved and trusted generals we spent an hour or more wandering through danois's ancient seat with an old guardian who clearly was in love with every stone of it and who time and again reminded us that it was more interesting than any of the great chateaux of the loire especially in that it had been scarcely restored at all about the latest addition to chateaudam was a beautiful open stairway of the sixteenth century in perfect condition to-day on the other side is another fine façade and stairway which damois himself added in a niche there stands a statue of the famous old soldier probably made from life if only some sculptor or painter might have preserved for us the features of joan through that golden land which lies between the loire and the loire we drifted through a long summer afternoon and came at evening to a noble bridge that crossed a wide tranquil river beyond which rose the towers of ancient tours capital of touraine the touraine was a favorite place for kings who built their magnificent country palaces in all directions there are more than fifty chateaux within easy driving distance of tours we did not by any means intend to visit all of the chateau for chateau visiting from a diversion may easily degenerate into labor we had planned especially however to see chinon where joan of arc went to meet the king to ask for soldiers this is not on the loire but on a tributary a little south of it the vienne with the castle crowning the long hill or ridge above the town Sometime during the afternoon we came to the outskirts of the ancient place and looked up to the ruined battlements and towers where occurred that meeting which meant the liberation of France. The chateau today is the ruin of what originally was three chateaus, built at different times but closely strung together, so that in ruin they are scarcely divided. The oldest, Coudre, was built in the 10th century and still shows three towers standing, in one of which Joan of Arc lived during her stay at Chinon. The middle chateau was built a hundred years later on the site of a Roman fort, and it was in one of its rooms, a fragment of which still remains, that Charles VII received the shepherd girl from Domremy. The Chateau of St. George was built in the 12th century by Henry II of England, who died there in 1189. 
though built two hundred years later than coudray nothing remains of it today but some foundations chinon is a much more extensive ruin than we had expected even what remains must be nearly a quarter of a mile in length and its vast crumbling walls and crenellated towers make it strikingly picturesque but its ruin is complete none the less once through the entrance tower and you are under nothing but the sky with your feet on the grass there is no longer a shelter there even for a fugitive king you wander about viewing it scarcely more than as a ruin at first a place for painting for seclusion for dreaming in the sun then all at once you are facing a wall in which halfway up where once was the second story there is a restored fireplace and a tablet which tells you that in this room charles the seventh received joan of arc it is not a room now it is just a wall a fragment with vines matting its ruined edges you cross a stone footbridge to the tower where joan lived and that also is open to the sky and bare and desolate while beyond it there was a little chapel where she prayed but that is gone there are other fragments and other towers but they merely serve as a setting for those which the intimate presence of joan made sacred the maid did not go immediately to the castle on her arrival in chinon she put up at an inn down in the town and waited the king's pleasure his paltering advisers kept him dallying and postponing his consent to see her but through the favour of his mother-in-law yolanda queen of sicily joan and her suite were presently housed in coudray the king was still unready to see joan she was only a stone's throw away now but the whisperings of his advisers kept her there when there were no further excuses for delay they contrived a trick a deception they persuaded the king to put another on the throne one like him and in his royal dress so that joan might pay homage to this make-believe king thus proving that she had no divine power or protection which would assist her in identifying the real one in the space where now is only green grass and sky and a broken wall charles the seventh and his court gathered to receive the shepherd girl who had come to restore his kingdom it was evening and the great hall was lighted and at one end of it was the throne with its imitation king and i suppose at the other this fireplace with its blazing logs down the centre of the room were the courtiers formed in two ranks facing so that joan might pass between them to the throne the occasion was one of great ceremony joan and her suite were welcomed with fine honours banners waved torches flared trumpets blown at intervals marked the stages of her progress down the great hall every show was made of paying her great honour everything that would distract her and blind her to their trick charles the seventh dressed as a simple courtier stood a little distance from the throne joan advancing to within a few steps of the pretended king raised her eyes then for a moment she stood silent puzzled they expected her to kneel and make obeisance but a moment later she turned and hurrying to the rightful charles dropped on her knee and gave him a heartfelt salutation she had never seen him and was without knowledge of his features the protectors she had known in her vision had not failed her it was perhaps the greatest moment in french history in the quest for outlying chateaux one is likely to forget that tour itself is very much worth while 
Tours has been a city ever since France had a history, and it fought against Caesar as far back as 52 B.C. It took its name from the Gallic tribe of that section, the Turoni, dwellers in the cliffs, I dare say, along the Loire. Tours was beloved by French royalty. It was the capital of a province as rich as it was beautiful. Among French provinces, Touraine was perhaps the aristocrat. Its language has been kept pure. To this day, the purest French in the world is spoken at Tours. The mechanic who made some repairs for me at the garage leaned on the mudguard during a brief intermission of that hottest of days and told me about the purity of the French language at Tours, and if there was anything wrong with his own locution, my ear was not fine enough to detect it. To me it seemed as limpid as something distilled. Imagine such a thing happening in, say, Bridgeport. Tours is still proud, still the aristocrat, still royal. The Germans held Tours during the early months of 1871, but there is now no trace of their occupation. It was a bad dream which Tours does not care even to remember. Tours contains a fine cathedral, and the remains of what must have been a still finer one, two noble towers so widely separated by streets and buildings that it is hard to imagine them ever having belonged to one structure. They are a part of the business of Tours now. Shops are under them, lodgings in them. One of these old relics is called the Clock Tower, the other the Tower of Charlemagne, because Ricard, his third queen, was buried beneath it. End of chapter 7